0: Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. As always, this podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department and in collaboration with our partners at the American Anthropological Association. I'm Alex Wilkins. And I'm Emma Legan. Last time you heard from us,
1: we introduced the concept of childhood and explained what happens during growth and development during the prenatal and infancy periods.
0: This time, we'll continue where we left off, talking about growth and development during childhood and adolescence.
1: We stopped episode 1A after explaining the process of weaning. Once an individual has been weaned, they are considered to be in the childhood period of their life history. Childhood is defined as the period following infancy when the individual is weaned, but they are still dependent on older individuals for food and protection.
0: Childhood can be separated into an early and a late period. The main difference here is that during the later childhood period, an individual has already developed more advanced physical and cognitive abilities to provide them a lot, though not all, of their own food, and they are also better able to protect themselves from environmental hazards.
1: During childhood, brain development and maturation is extremely important. Children who are around 5 years old use somewhere between 40 and 85 percent of their resting metabolism on brain maintenance. Comparatively, adults only use between 16 and 25 percent for the same function. Other areas of the body also develop during this period, including important systems like the digestive
0: tract. In terms of skeletal growth and development, childhood itself is an important period because growth occurs in a long and steady state to match the growth rates of other biological systems. This is also a busy time for dental development. Many of your permanent teeth are mineralizing and beginning the process of eruption.
1: As doctor Guatelli Guattelli-Steinberg pointed out in episode 1B, such a long, extended childhood is unusual. This brings us to two interesting questions. When and why did it begin?
0: Answering when it began is challenging for anthropologists because the stages of life history can only be observed in living species. But, as Dr. Guatelli-Steinberg also described in Episode 1b, areas of the skeleton and dentition can help us interpret answers to this question.
1: Paleoanthropologists study our fossil ancestors and attempt to answer the question of how life history has changed using dental and skeletal growth rate analyses. These analyses have led some researchers to think that the extended childhood arose about a million and a half years ago with Homo erectus.
0: Even if we are eventually able to identify when extended childhood first developed in the fossil record, it's important to understand that an elongated childhood period didn't happen overnight. The Neanderthal pattern of growth and development is an intermediate between earlier members of the genus Homo, like Homo erectus, and humans today. So this indicates that it took a long time for this modern childhood period to take its form. Another important question,
1: like I said before, is why did extended childhood develop? Anthropologists cannot agree why an extended childhood would have developed.
0: Some common arguments for why our long childhood developed include the idea that childhood allows for an extended period of brain growth, time for the acquisition of skills, such as making tools or processing food, or time to play in order to develop our cultural behaviors.
1: But other primates develop similar traits during long childhood
0: periods, just not as long as
1: ours. For example, orangutans stay with their mothers for about eight years and have to learn how to do things
0: like building sleep nests. So anthropologists are looking to other explanations that could help us understand why longer childhood developed. Some of these additional explanations include the idea that childhood as a period that allows reproductive adaptations for both children and parents, or that childhood allows for longer periods of developmental plasticity or behavioral flexibility.
1: Regardless of when or why extended childhood came about in human evolution, human childhood ends when the adolescent stage begins. You know how girls and boys go through growth spurts beginning around 10 and 12 years old? This rapid growth period is a defining characteristic of this adolescent period. Everyone goes through this growth spurt, but the rate and amount of growth varies between individuals.
0: So for example, patterns of growth, including during this adolescent growth spurt, differ between males and females. On average, the growth spurt generally starts earlier for females than males, but boys tend to grow faster and longer, even though they start later.
1: The growth spurt isn't the only defining characteristic of this adolescent period, although it is one of the most important. Other important changes, such as hormonal changes during puberty, also happen during this time.
0: Unlike childhood, adolescence isn't limited just to humans. Similar physical and behavioral changes occur in other species of mammals and primates. For example, male gorillas undergo a growth spurt when they are between 8 and 15 years old, and there's a big increase in body size Adolescence ends and adulthood begins when the adolescent growth spurt ceases.
1: Individuals achieve full reproductive maturity and the epiphyses, or the ends of the long bones, fuse to form the final adult size. On average, this occurs by age 20 in females
0: and 25 in males. Given these ages, we can emphasize the difference between biological and cultural maturity that we discussed in episode 1a. In none of the cultural scenarios for adulthood did we include the ages of 20 and 25, yet these are the average ages of biological maturity for females and males. Okay, let's go back to a couple of key points
1: about growth and development during both childhood and adolescence. During both of these periods, growth is less controlled by genetic factors, making individuals susceptible to environmental influences. This means that during childhood and adolescence, humans become very plastic, which if you remember from our last episode, means that they can adapt to many different circumstances.
0: For example, if an individual experiences periods of malnutrition, infection, or another type of severe stress during important growth periods, their growth may become stunted, or they might be shorter. Children and adolescents who are stunted may not grow to their full genetic potential because their bodies redirect energy from skeletal growth towards maintaining more important organs like the brain.
1: But this doesn't mean that they will remain stunted. Catch-up growth can occur throughout the developmental period, but is most often observed during the adolescent growth spurt. Through catch-up growth, individuals who recover from earlier periods of malnutrition or infection may grow faster or longer following the event, allowing them to come closer to their genetic potential than if they did not experience catch-up growth.
0: So in other words, even if growth is slowed because of an environmental reason early on, the person who experienced these disruptions to growth can still grow to more of an average instead of smaller adult height.
1: There are other important examples of how humans are able to adapt to environmental circumstances during these periods of growth and development. Remember again that the environment includes your diet as well as the climate where
0: you live. For example, if you travel to high altitudes like Cusco or Machu Picchu in Peru, the air is thinner, and so it'll take more effort to get enough oxygen. However, if you were born in these high-altitude conditions and your body was developing under low oxygen, you might develop larger lungs. And these developmental adaptations would stick with you throughout your life,
1: even if you moved to lower altitudes later. If your kids were born and raised at low altitudes, they would probably not develop larger lung volumes like you did.
0: Aside from the physical environment, anthropologists are also interested in studying how cultural practices can influence biological variation. Each culture tends to have
1: its own standards of attractiveness. Generally, these trends are illustrated by the types of clothes people choose or the way they wear their hair. These styles are temporary and easily changed depending on what's considered
0: trendy at the time. But sometimes cultures choose to more permanently alter individuals because this is more easily done while people are growing. Practices usually occur during infancy, childhood, or adolescence. A great example of this is how some cultures in various
1: parts of the world, past or present, choose to alter cranial shape. In South America, parts of the ancient Incan culture shaped the back of children's heads with cloth to encourage the development of an elongated skull shape.
0: This process would have taken many years as as well as frequent reapplication of the cloth bindings by the caregivers to maintain these growth patterns. Generally, it's thought that this head wrapping started as early as a month or even two after birth and could last several years until the cranium is less responsive to environmental effects because it's mostly fully formed.
1: Because these modifications begin at such a young age, the brain is able to adapt to the cranial modifications so that the cranial deformation practices do not impact the person's cognitive abilities.
0: The Incan Empire included multiple cultural groups, but not all of these groups used the same practices of cranial deformation. When archaeologists find skeletons from the Incan period, they can use cranial modifications to help decide which of the smaller groups the individual likely would have belonged to. But the head isn't the only part of the body that people have altered because of cultural practices.
1: Historically, in China, girls from families who could afford for them not to work had their feet bound. From a very young age, a girl's feet would be wrapped tightly so that their arch would become incredibly
0: high, shortening the overall lengths of their feet. Small feet were thought to be prettier, but this alteration to their feet made it very difficult for them to walk or stand for long periods of time, forcing them to be less active. Again, because they practiced this at a young age, the shape of their feet were changed permanently. Generally, only families
1: that were wealthy enough to support their daughters
0: rather than put them to
1: work would practice this very permanent change. It would also be a sign that she could be a good catch for a
0: high-status male. Head and feet binding are both plastic changes caused by human cultural practices. These shapes would not occur naturally without some sort of external environmental influence. In both of these cases, the individual's culture helped create their environment. Changes
1: in the skeleton in the past do not always need a cultural or extreme environmental cause, though. And anthropologists can study changes that normally occur during growth and development.
0: So one of the easiest examples to use is how the shape and length of long bones changes in response to developmental milestones during infancy and childhood, such as the transformation from sitting to crawling, crawling to walking. If you remember, we mentioned one of these processes that helps shape
1: bones called modeling during episode 1A. Modeling is important because it serves to build or take away bone on surfaces to reshape the shafts or ends of the bones.
0: This process allows the bone to become more mechanically efficient, meaning that it will develop a size and shape that makes sense energetically for that individual. You don't want to have a diaphysis, which if you remember is the shaft of that long bone, that's so big that it requires more energy than the individual can give it, but you also don't want a diaphysis that is too small or wouldn't be able to support the weight.
1: When you look at a picture or a model of a bone, that outer surface that you see is made up of a tissue called cortical bone, but it isn't the only type of bone that allows the skeleton to respond to different forces.
0: The other type of bone is called trabecular or spongy bone. Its appearance honestly kind of looks like a honeycomb, making it lighter and and more porous than cortical bone. It helps strengthen bone by redistributing forces through a large network of rods and plates. If you're having trouble visualizing this, we can compare trabecular
1: bone to the Eiffel Tower with its support beams. Each of its beams helps to increase the ability of the structure of the whole to withstand forces like winds. Trabecular bone acts similarly, but in response to other types of mechanical forces.
0: Anthropologists can use these functions of trabecular and cortical bone to understand how plastic physical changes developed in the past in response to maybe cultural or environmental stimuli.
1: Right, but plastic changes didn't just happen in the past. There are plenty of modern examples, too. Orthodontic practices can cause permanent changes in the skull, and braces are a common sight on children and preteens in America.
0: Naturally, these individuals might have overbites, or their mouth might be too small for all of their teeth, and this could be considered a health problem because the teeth might not line up properly, causing this individual to have trouble chewing their food, which can lead to jaw pain. Braces and other orthodontic
1: practices can also have an aesthetic effect. People in modern Western culture tend to find straight teeth more attractive. Using braces to straighten teeth might not necessarily have a direct relationship to the individual's health, but they might benefit the individual in other ways.
0: All of these changes are easiest to obtain before individuals are finished growing, meaning that they all primarily occur prior to the end of the adolescent period. At the end of adolescence, all of the long bones are fused, and the
1: period of growth and development is complete. Typically, human biologists refer to this event as being the
0: transition into adulthood. And this doesn't mean that no further biological changes happen during adulthood, but the skeletal changes during adulthood typically include a process called remodeling, or maintenance of pre-existing bone, instead of the same sort of growth and development. This change between adulthood and the previous periods have very important implications for other areas of
1: anthropological study. For example, anthropologists who study human skeletal remains find it easier to estimate age at death in juveniles because the indicators they use are based on the predictable patterns of growth that are more closely tied to genetics at earlier ages.
0: That's right, and it's much more challenging to estimate age at death in adult individuals because the skeletal traits used for adulthood are based on breakdown and decay, which depend much more on environmental pressures than on genetics. There are other ways that anthropologists use growth and development
1: to understand the rest of the life cycle. For example, some anthropologists study functional morphology, which is interested in inferring the relationship between the shape of the bones and the functions that they are
0: adapted to. This is based on the idea of plasticity and modeling during growth and development. Notably, the big picture here is that bone will form where needed in response to mechanical loading and be taken away where it's not needed. The actual process is much more difficult, but it results in a bone that's adapted to what is considered an optimum strain level.
1: So in other words, mechanical loading can affect the appearance of the bone in both adults and children. Children respond more quickly to mechanical loading because their bones are growing and developing, but adult bones can also adapt to the strain, even if they do so much more slowly.
0: As a result, anthropologists can use skeletal remains to understand things like patterns of locomotion in primates, or just simply how the primates moved. Anthropologists have also looked at our
1: past subsistence changes using aspects of functional morphology, such as changes in the shape of the lower jaw, also called a mandible, between individuals who belong to hunter-gatherer groups versus those who
0: belong to agricultural groups. Potentially due to differences in toughness of food, the lower jaw of agriculturalists was often taller than the lower jaw of hunter-gatherers in the past. Based on these changes we described before about the changes today with orthodontia, it would be really interesting to see a study whether jaw size or shape is being affected by braces. So as you can see, plasticity is an extremely important concept when we
1: study skeletal development and adult skeletal morphology.
0: And these are only a couple examples of how anthropologists have incorporated these ideas into studies of past human groups, contemporary human groups, and primate groups. Today, we wrapped up our discussion about human growth and development through adolescence. Next
1: time, Alex and I will talk about how we use this information in the archaeological record to study the lives
0: of children in the past. But first, our next conversation episode will include a collaboration between two Ohio State anthropologists. Dr. Giuseppe Vercellotti, an adjunct assistant professor at OSU, is a biological anthropologist who studies growth and development from skeletal samples in medieval Italy, and Jesse Goliath, a graduate student here, who studies trabecular bone morphology during development in children from prehistoric Illinois. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast
1: and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at a astoryofusOSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And don't forget to leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews that we have, the easier it is for people to find the
0: show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and we hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.